Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ajam podcast. Dear listeners, I have a very special guest today. I am here with Neda Marhoule, who is an alumni of the Ajam podcast, and I'm so happy to have her back on. She is a professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. She is the author of the book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race. Neda, thank you so much for coming back. I've missed you, actually. <laughs> I am so glad to be back. I think the first time I officially joined the Ajamali was 2014, the conference formerly known as ISIS, which was in Montreal that year. Oh my year. God, we can't call it that anymore. <laughs> So yeah, like, if you're listening, <laughs> FBI, uh, we mean the uh, Association of Iranian Studies, not not the other ISIS. So, <laughs> yeah, that was in that was in Montreal. A lot has happened since then. It has. So it's especially great to see you and so many wonderful members of the Adjamali at Mesa this year. Is there other people here? Um, uh, yeah, no? in the in the broad Adjamali, yeah, sure, Xavier, many friends. other people. Shout out to Xavier, yeah. also my roommate. <laughs> Lior, also another yes. uh, alumni of the Ajam podcast. So a lot has happened over the last couple of years. First thing I want to talk about is the fact that uh, your idea that you had when we were doing our podcast a couple of years ago is now a book. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> when I spoke to you guys in 2014, it was a idea under advanced contract, um, but it had yet to actually be fully written. Um, I had a couple chapters ready to go and um, a timeline to get it done. But uh, yeah, things happened really, really fast. And it came out, um, the book, in September 2017. Wow. Now we're so excited to read it. Um, I mean, I feel like I've, I've, I've dreamt it. I've slept it. For our listeners who probably didn't catch our first podcast in 2014, can you just uh, uh, walk us through your research a little bit? Sure. Uh, so that book, The Limits of Whiteness, uh, talks about the paradoxical relationship that Iranians uh, as a relatively recent immigrant community in the United States have to the predominant racial order in the U.S. And so um, as your listeners may know, um, persons with origins in Europe, the Middle East and North Africa are counted as white on the U.S. census. And again, as many of your listeners know, um, Iranians and other groups from that part of the world also have their own mythologies or racial ideologies um, about the the supposed Aryan or white um, sort of origins of them. Uh, and then they they come into these diasporic environments like the U.S., where um, many face uh, issues that resemble those faced by communities of color, whether it's street-level harassment or discrimination or the kind of um, political organizing that people do that's based on, you know, sites of affiliation and identity. And so my book tackles what does it mean when uh, there's a sort of top-down state category of white imposed on Iranians. Um, they bring their own racial baggage about that type of stuff with them from their country of origin. And then what happens when the rubber hits the road, you know, and their sort of lived experiences or their show, their social experience uh, doesn't match up with those labels. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's like memory lane. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in many ways, like so many of our friends and listeners could have also written this book. I mean, it's just not... like also yeah. <laughs> like, 
you know, everybody goes down this like idea of, oh, like Aryan, like glorious this Persian glorious, civilization, exactly, untainted by Cyrus conquerors. <laughs> pure you know (laughs) yes and that that is a very it is true right that that becomes a point of pride or a way to access one's heritage because you know god forbid they would ever teach anything in world history right that didn't involve sort of this eurocentric you know totally problematic stuff and so yes totally like that's a very common pattern is that in families or even young people themselves going to Google or Wikipedia, right? Or trying to forge some kind of a relationship. Sure, Reddit, thank you (laughs) for the update. Um, Yeah, all the youngins out there. (laughs) (laughs) They're trying to access some sort of of information, right? And so um, these narratives are really thrilling and I think um, they're doing a lot of work for people. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of your human subjects, the people you interviewed, like tell us a little bit about the um, the actual academic research that you did, like just in terms of methodology, in terms of, I mean, because last time we talked, it was mostly about the idea, you know, how did you end up fulfilling the project? How, now that the book is over, like, how did you, how did you write it? Thank you. Well, so I think in 2014, when I first did the Ajam podcast, um, I was, when I was giving examples, I think, of some of the core paradoxes that the book addresses, I was talking a lot about my interviews with 84 young Iranian-Americans. So I um, traveled the country doing you know, in-depth interviews, oftentimes in people's bedrooms or in their family homes. Um, I wanted to really get to know a cross-section of, of young people who were second generation, so born in the U.S. Um, and I also had done field work at Camp Oyanda, which is one of the programs under the organization EOB. Shout out to uh, Iyab, who are our <laughs> fiscal sponsors, by the way, if you're listening, thank you Hi, for the Iyab. sending the invoices. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> makes it happen. Um, so you know, the a lot of the the work that I was talking about in 2014 had to do with with these real life human subjects, right? Um, that I was doing qualitative work with, and then um, in the course of writing the book, I realized that there was a lot of heavy lifting that had to be done in terms of primary and secondary texts that excavated in some ways like a hidden history of Iranians in the U.S. Um, In many ways, we have artificially limited our considerations um, to post-1979, which is when the first really critical mass came to stay. But of course, as research from many of our friends has shown over time, right, that we had um, significant political student movements right through the 50s and the 60s and so on yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) our friend manijan you know um many other people who have done a lot of work to do oral histories to kind of reconstruct that history but you can take it even further back right and so this is what i ended up doing in the span of time since we last talked and now that i sit here with the finished book is like tons of archival work that had to do with finding the location of iranians and what's called the racial prerequisite cases so 100 years ago yeah awesome yeah, a hundred. Let me get into Sorry. it. <laughs> I'm like, so ready. Um, about a hundred years ago or so. Well, technically, from 1790 to 1952, um, when a immigrant uh, came to the U.S. if they wanted to claim um, naturalization and to become a citizenship, uh, to become a citizen, they had to uh, oftentimes prove to a actual literal court. Um, local 
or federal if it got kicked up um, that they were white. And so the applications for citizenship for many different groups were placed on hold um, as courts duked it out about whether or not, for example, Arabs, Armenians, South Asians could make a claim to being Caucasian or white, um, European-oriented, Christian, a variety of different tools people were using, right, to sort of establish this claim to being eligible for citizenship. And so although there are a couple cases where quote-unquote Persians are in the record as having themselves been a claimant, even more often than that, they are referenced by the Armenian, Arab, and South Asian claimants when they go to court. And so, for example... Armenians and Arab claimants would often go to court and they'd say, you know, we're Christian, right? Because at the time, like the Syrians right, or whatever, yeah, it wasn't, um, it was a different, it was a different migration wave. And so they'd go to court and say, do you want to know who the brown people are from our part of the world? Go look at the Iranians, Mohammedans, fire worshiping Zoroastrians, right? We are white because they are brown. And it was the reverse with um, some South Asian claimants. Uh, for example, Bhagat Singh Thind, which is one of the landmark cases, 1923, went all the way to the Supreme Court. He was a Sikh Punjabi, a former U.S. Army serviceman who said, you know, my family originally migrated from Persia. We're Aryan. We're Caucasian. There are these connections on the Indo-European language tree between Sanskrit and Persian. And so therefore, because of my ancestral roots in Iran, I am white. And so different claimants were using Iranians to their advantage in different ways. And so, um, yeah, I had to do a lot of work to to really tell the full story of Iranians' um, paradoxical relationship to race here. How did this change in uh, the, um, let's say, the major migration, right? What happens after 1979? Like, how does this kind of go into full swing with with the massive amounts of people that were here uh, from, you know, the late 70s and onwards. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, um, when all was said and done with these racial prerequisite cases, it was determined that um, Arabs and Armenians ultimately were white. South Asians were ultimately non-white. Um, this racial prerequisite for uh, citizenship, as I said, changed in 1952 with the Hart-Seller Act. Um, but ultimately, by the time you get to the 70s, you're looking at an environment in Washington, D.C. where they really wanted to standardize the categories around race and ethnicity that the federal government was using. And so um, as a kind of holdover from the civil rights era in the 1960s, when a lot of different pan-ethnic groups came together, for example, Asian groups like the Japanese, the Vietnamese, the Koreans, strange bedfellows that in other circumstances wouldn't have necessarily banded together, they formed a coalition and they got like an Asian box and, you know, so on and so forth. Hispanic is a bit more complicated. Its status as an ethnicity, as a race, it deserves its own podcast. And those books have been written. Um, but in any case, um, due to some of the, the politics of the time, um, MENA groups uh, remained in the white category. And so when you have, right, the post-revolution uh, massive wave of migrants from Iran who came, they had this incredible moment of stigmatization and racialization because of the different kinds of images that were circulating of protest in Tehran and the hostage crisis. Um, but at the same time, there was this moment of dramatic standardization of what white meant across all all of the different categories and agencies and bureaus in, in D.C., which had a trickle-down effect to state and local governments, too. So they were consecrated as white at the exact moment that they were extremely legible as a stigmatized and racialized population. 
I like the look on your face. <laughs> uh, you guys I'll never could forget see it. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's also me trying to think of the next question, though. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, let me tell you like what's happened uh, since since yeah. it came out. Because no, I'm actually super because you know like you were you went on the book tour. Um, <laughs> That's a generous thing also, to call uh, it. Weren't you like top like top selling book on Amazon for like <laughs> <laughs> for anthropology? That's a credit to you know the the listenership. Also, screw Amazon. Or, yes, exactly. <laughs> that goes without saying. Yeah. Um, but you know there was a. I think we always. In no matter what community you're in, if it's a subculture or a, a subset, right? So I could think of like our Iranian community. Typically, we have this common wisdom that's like we don't support our own, right? Um, we just live to tear one another down and we don't support one another's projects, whether it's artistic or, or politics, organizing, that kind of stuff. And I really had um, an experience that challenged that, which was like right out the gate. Um, there was significant interest in the book, which then gave it a lot of visibility in spaces, like you said, like on Amazon. And um, I was like totally shocked because my work while it connects to Middle East studies, the kinds of research that folks at Adjam do, you guys were the first ones that really opened um, opened your hearts, you opened your minds, you opened your arms to including the kind of work that I do within the broader conversations that you all were having. And then when my book came out, you know, it was really gratifying to get invited, for example, to places like NYU Iranian Studies Initiative, right, or Middle East Studies uh, Department at UC Berkeley. Uh, I never thought that my book would find an audience in those spaces. And so that was a really, really kind and beautiful outcome of this. And then again, that like, that Iranians, uh, not just Iranians, but particularly Iranians, like actually spent the money and bought the book and then they gave it to their cousin or you know whoever like and that I could see both on social media and what people would tell me about the way that it was getting handed around and traded around um it was totally a shock and I'm very grateful for that and don't take this the wrong way I'm I'm shocked that so many people have been receptive to the book because it is something that a lot of people don't want to hear, right? Like, I think there is a particular narrative that an older generation has about whiteness and claims to whiteness. And one of the things that I found really interesting is, you know, you were giving a talk at, what was it, the FAG? No, where, where was it? <laughs> so, yes, yeah, some of the talks I've given have been at universities, but also some of them have been in, like, cultural organizations in suburban metropolitan areas around the country. These are the kind of places where Nowruz is celebrated or Farsi classes are held on Sundays. And they too, like really um, with open minds, open hearts, invited me to, to give talks to non-academic audiences. And people actually took time out of their days to like show up and engage the talk. Um, in book signing lines, I would have like first generation grandparents um, come up and they'd say things like, um, I don't agree with you, but I love you and I support you. I don't know if that's, that's what I want with my parents to say at Thanksgiving, you know? That's all we can hope for, right? It's like, I don't agree with you, but I, but love, I love you, you. <laughs> and I support you. I don't know if that was a Stanford press or what, you know? But, um, they, uh, it, it found this bigger reception sort of in non academic spaces. And like you pointed out, um, among, among places where, 
I think it's been easy for me as a second generation person to write entire swaths of like the community off and to say like they're closed minded or they don't want to hear this. This is taboos. And frankly, no, like that was my bad. Like people are engaging it. I will say one thing for like the diehards who listen to this podcast who are fam. I'm going to tell you like one little secret, which is. It was true. The grandparents or parents would come up to me and they'd say, I don't agree with you, but I respect you and I, I support you. They'd say this to me in person, face to face. However, I have also done radio, um, like different Persian hours, right, in, in local communities on public radio. And uh, when they're calling in to talk to me on the phone and ask questions about the book or, or challenge some of the claims, the interaction can be different. It can definitely like take more of the tone that you were um, sort of indicating when you asked the question, right, about folks that that would challenge some of the claims or be be uh, not as receptive to them. And so to be sure, like that is there. And I don't um, I don't imagine that it's not there. But uh, I have been so lucky that like in terms of the face to face experiences, um, people are very generous um and yeah like q a can get heated sometimes at these community talks but it's super respectful and and i've never felt um that people were, were disrespecting the scholarship as you mentioned i just want to thank all the woke persian dads out in the audience hopefully uh, you continue to be woke <laughs> what can we do to support you on your woke journey <laughs> Let me also just say one thing about what I just said, which was like, how can we support you on your work journey? Frankly, I have to say, with the election of Trump in 2017, it is this older generation who have lived through other sort of government formations, societal upheaval, where a new leader is installed and stuff changes dramatically overnight shit goes sideways actually they're the ones that kind of understand how to navigate this situation so i have truly i'm not saying this to be like you know um like tall roofing like oh we know the answer and and they do too but it's like actually like they know how to live through these sorts of social upheavals right and in many ways like as canaries in the coal mine like they could see it coming before i could at least where like i've been indoctrinated into this idea of liberal democracy and like blah 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 and now i see like oh like that can the, be eroded it can be eroded in me this is all about norms and like norms don't mean anything right um so so yeah it's it's actually like amazing that like i am on a woke journey trying to to figure out right where like my politics like failed to understand the urgency of this situation until it was way too late like i said um i'm so happy that and so glad that the book has um really helped engage our community as someone that like i have a very tenuous relationship with the <laughs> with our community but i'm glad that like you know you're the one doing you know the work right you're out there and um helping change minds and also you know learn something from our older generation as well and our younger generation. I'm just kind of like sitting around looking at archival documents, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, like is just, it's, it's been so cool to like be this dilettante where like I, I tried to do a little bit of historiography and these other things. Like I've, um, I have so much respect for like all the different methods that people in the Ajam family use. I mean, I know you have anthropologists on board and historians and interdisciplinary people, but I appreciated that the book allowed me to like dabble a little bit um, in stuff that was unfamiliar. And so um, it's been interesting, right? The way that uh, the way that, yeah, like people have been able to connect to it, whether they're in sociology or not. Just because you have the Ajam bump 
I want to make sure your second book has that gem bump. So I want to talk about your new project. Awesome. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Since you haven't told yes, me Yes. So literally, Ajam was like the very first media or like I, I stuck my like flagpole down and I was like, this is my territory. It was really you guys in 2014. Um, so so I appreciate that you're looking out for me with, with project number two. Um, so I live in Canada now. I moved there five years ago. I guess I'm like a super literal person and I want to study the thing that's like directly in front of my face because no sooner had I moved to Canada than I was like, I'm, I'm done with the States. I did the Iranian thing. What's happening on the ground now was like um, at the same time that there was the election cycle here where it was the end of Obama's term and uh, Trump gets elected uh, there. It was sort of the reverse. There was this guy, Stephen Harper, who was a conservative prime minister. And when we moved there, um, there was a federal election in Canada. And that's when the liberal government with Justin Trudeau as prime minister took over. And they had a really... Um, overnight because it's truly there's not a lame duck session like in america it's like the election happens and the next day justin trudeau moves into parliament hill so overnight um the ground shifted under our feet and one of his sort of like flagship um projects was the resettlement of twenty five thousand syrian refugees in six weeks like from day one and so um this was like super fascinating to me because Canada um, articulates a very different political vision of who it is as a sort of multicultural tolerant society. Um, and this was like very much a mechanism that, that Trudeau was using to reinvigorate that side of Canadian ideology and Canadian history. Uh, and I was super interested that like in a moment of like dramatic Islamophobia, even in Canada, right, we have things like the Quebec City shooting and, and, and really dramatic forms of anti Muslim racism. Um, what did it mean to like um, to to draw a refugee community that was at once sort of romanticized and valorized as as the way that Canada could sort of show its best self on the political stage to the world, but also right a community that would undoubtedly face different forms of exclusion and discrimination once they arrived. And so it was really fascinating to me. And we were super lucky. We got a little bit of seed money from the government to study that first wave of of newcomers who landed on the very first plane. Um, uh, that project uh, then got scaled up and out. And now suddenly I'm the principal investigator on a five-year longitudinal study that has a half a million dollars from the Canadian government. And it's a, yeah, it's a five-year study now of um, 100 Syrian newcomer mothers and 100 of their teenage children. And we're tracking their experiences uh, in their first years of resettlement with a specific eye on issues that have to do with resettlement, identity, stress. Um, and so I'm excited that in this new version of the study because our pilot study that was small was with mothers um we are able to integrate teens because guess what teens are super stressful and so the teens emerged as a major stressor in our pilot study and i was like well i have experience with young people for my first book and so i would love to figure out a way right to do a 360 lens on the mother teen relationship because i love young people and i'm super fascinated by them um but to really like sort of amplify and understand um right what does it mean to sort of be be very legible very coveted as a refugee group um but then to also right sort of deal with these bigger global forces um around exclusion and hate i know that five years is a long time and it's maybe too early to draw some conclusions but um what are your initial findings that you're starting to realize in this project um 
Could you like give us a preview of some of the things you're thinking, you're just thinking through or for sure. Yeah. I'll tell you about two things. Um, or maybe three things. Lists of three I've heard are very like yeah, it's, good it's very... for understanding and cognition. <laughs> so in my list of three, um, I'll just say that um the first sort of uh, major findings that we had from that pilot study with mothers was that they faced three different types of major stressors in the first year the first had to do with like that they were finally crystallizing the trauma of war once they were quote unquote safe in canada right they'd sort of been in survival mode and so finally the fullness of the loss that they had experienced was able to be grieved and experienced um so that was a first level stressor secondly um mothers faced stressors that had to do with like their children's welfare in school everything from how to negotiate bullying you know to like making sure their kids get resources because oftentimes they were coming with different issues around disability and those sorts of things so that was very stressful and then as i said teenagers were the third major stressor um and it dovetails with i think what some of your listeners know about and the broader literature which is like teens become an icon for how the family is going to do in the future. So it's like if your teen can survive and they're on their way, then that means like I was, for example, a good mother or we were able to maintain our cultural values and Islam or whatever it is that's important to that family, right? Um, but if the teenager doesn't fare well, then that becomes a referendum both on the family and their well-being, but also about their future in a place like Canada or America, right? So it's very fraught, this thing with teenagers. Um, a lot so of pressure. Tons of pressure. Just and thought so, getting into a good school was bad, but like <laughs> I know, and to have so it being a, like a, a judgment passed on yeah, my entire family, like a bellwether for the whole family. So um, that that's super fascinating to me, and was part of I think why we were able to go to the government and these funding agencies and say like, look, we want to dig into this more to create some supports and best practices around how to support support these relationships in these families. Um, a second sort of line of research from this has to do with the actual design of the study because like guess what i don't speak arabic people who are listening to this might be like what is this woman doing <laughs> american who speaks Pinglish is like studying syrian newcomers in canada <laughs> so <laughs> yes the loan words will only get you so far <laughs> so uh yeah I have an article coming out um, with my co-authors, including our grad students, uh, in this journal called Meridians, uh, which is a feminist um, transnational sort of women of color journal. Uh, and this article lays out our um, methodology. So by virtue of the fact that I don't speak Arabic, I'm not the appropriate person to be conducting fieldwork in Arabic because, you know, like um, many of the newcomer families we work with are not literate in Arabic. So this is like spoken Arabic, right? But they are not reading or, or writing per se uh, in the language um, due to just like educational type limitations. And so um, I needed uh, like a robust team of researchers who are native level Arabic speakers and in some ways this is a project that could only be accomplished in Toronto because I have a team of 10 RAs, uh, grad students and undergrads who are my field workers and they are absolutely incredible 
and I could not do this work without them. So in this article that we have coming out in Meridians, I lay out kind of this like multi-generational research team that we forged and the way that we were able to build with some success and some failure, some aspects of participant action research so that the mothers also became researchers and they were presenting with us at conferences and we were trying to integrate them into the knowledge production process. And so um, in this article, which is kind of a methods piece, we lay that out. Um, And then the third thing I'll say, is like the paper I just gave at Mesa. So when I saw you in the hallway... I'm so sorry, Mr. Panel. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, there were so many good panels that were yeah. scheduled at the same time. But when I was coming down the escalator and I saw you, it was because our panel had let out. And so the paper I just gave had to do with this tension that I noticed in many of the interviews once they were translated into English by the Cracker Jack research team we have, um, it was like, okay, we, we are asking all these questions about stressors, and yet this theme is emerging where it seems like moms, these refugee mothers, have an, they feel an obligation to show gratitude or to, to demonstrate that they're grateful for you know Canada and its sponsorship. Um, but at the same time, they also want to be able to to express critiques of things that they disapprove of or things that haven't gone well in their resettlement. And there's this like constant tension between showing this sort of obligation of gratitude as well as, um, you know, trying to trying to remove or distance oneself from what one doesn't like. Um, so I call it the fragile obligation. And there's lots of work in the broader field of refugee studies that attends to this. Um, some of the like nuances of the case that we're looking at has to do with, in Canada, there's this like very unique way that private citizens sponsor refugees. In the U.S., it's different. It's like church organizations, and it's filtered down through the state. Um, so it's a really different landscape there. And so in Canada, with private sponsorship, you literally have like well-meaning not refugee Canadians who are all up in refugee newcomers faces being like, how are you doing? Like, is everything okay? Do you like the dishes we picked out for you? How's your bed? You don't like it? You know, like, and there's just sort of like total pressure, right? To sort of perform gratitude. Um, and so there's these like unique features that, that we're, we're trying to unpack and coming to give this talk was like so awesome because this audience was really helping me think through uh, this material, which again is very preliminary and in its early stages. That's fantastic. Neda, I know you have to go meet your family at the Riverwalk, so I don't want to keep you. Um, so once again, if you guys haven't read it, uh, it's Neda Makbule's book, The Limits of Whiteness, The Everyday Politics of Race. Thanks so much. This was so fun. It's always so good, these Ajamali reunions. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, we, we look forward to the next one where we talk about your second number one selling book. Thanks a lot. Uh, for our listeners, as always, uh, feel free to join the conversation. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter. I'll send you Neda's information as well if you want to ask her questions yourself. I'm very Googleable. Yeah, she is. So yeah, um, until next time. Bye-bye.